This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and, and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to, to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on, on these great men. And I've even visited on site leading tour groups to where really history was made. Uh, The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. There is so much to say about picking this up with Whitfield as he comes to the colonies. The year is 1739. It is late in the year of 1739, and he will leave in January of 1741. So he will have this entire year of 1740 to bring the Word of God. Uh, to trace Whitfield on this one year would require several more sessions. Uh, I tried it at our church in, that I pastored, the last church that I pastored. I tried it on one Wednesday night, and in an hour and a half, I still couldn't get it all in. All of the places that Whitfield went and all that took place along the way, it is just an absolutely extraordinary story. Uh, J.I. Packer said that wherever Whitfield came in the colonies, it was, quote, a major event, close quote. And Lloyd-Jones said that his preaching here in the States was, was simply overwhelming. Wherever Whitfield showed up, commerce ceased, businesses shut down, farmers left their plows in the field, judges delayed their hearings. Entire towns would just shut down in order that they could gather to hear Whitfield preach, and and he really set the American landscape ablaze with his preaching. As he comes to Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a city of about 13,000 people at the time. He addressed for his first session 6,000 people. Uh, He first tries to preach in a church, but there's danger of even the structure just collapsing. And so he has to move outside, and there are 6,000 people who gather. He he then journeys through New Jersey, and he goes to New York City. um, And as he comes to New York City, it will be the largest gathering to ever gather in the colonies. He first addressed 8,000 people in a field, and then on Sunday morning, he preached to 15,000 people, and then finally to 20,000 people in the afternoon. But he could never remain stationary. So he returns back to Philadelphia, and he goes to Elizabethtown, to New Brunswick, uh, and to other cities in the area And as he comes to Philadelphia the the second time, he is gaining momentum, and it is the talk of the town. And so as he comes to Philadelphia, he stood before again 6,000, and then it was 8,000 in the evening. So he would preach in the morning to 6,000, then he would preach to 8,000 in the evenings, and then by Sunday morning, the crowds had had grown to 10,000, and then in the afternoon, there were 25,000. And then finally, for his farewell address, there were 30,000 people. Philadelphia is only a city of 13,000 people. It is more than twice the population of the city. And as he is preaching, he is bringing heat. He is bringing passion. 
He is bringing truth. These are not just little devotional ditties that, that, that Whitfield is bringing. He is preaching with authority and with power. And Benjamin Franklin, who became a very close friend of Whitfield, Whitfield, I mean, Franklin wrote, I computed that Whitfield might well be heard by more than 30,000 people. This reconciled me to the newspaper account of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields. Remember, Franklin was somewhat of a scientist, uh, and he was very caught up in like discovering electricity and how that works. And so he did the computation in the math, how many people could be in a given area, and how far could his voice actually project? Uh, people have actually taken me to what is called Whitfield's Stone, which is out in the middle of nowhere. It's just an open field where Whitfield once preached. And they had me stand on the stone that Whitfield stood on, and then they walked a long ways away, like 200, uh, 200 yards away, like two football fields, could they actually hear me preach? Of course, this was an open field, and still to this day where Whitfield preached there, uh, it, it's still just an open field. There's no billboards, there's no roads, there's no signs. It, it's just virgin uh, field, and they were able to hear my voice as far away as 200 yards away. In fact, they pulled out their cell phone and recorded me actually quoting Scripture and preaching on top of of this stone. In fact, I think it's on YouTube. I had no idea that they were actually recording me. And actually what I said, the only part that was put, put on YouTube is what they got as, I, as they walked back to me and as they're standing very close. Uh, but they started out very far away. Well, the point is Benjamin Franklin, doing the math on this, said, yes, he could easily speak to 30,000 people. He, he could speak to more than 30,000 people. And and so, as he goes to New York, one man recorded what it was like to hear Whitfield preach to these 20,000 people in New York City. The man is a Dr. Thomas Prince, and it was recorded in his magazine, Christian History. He wrote, quote, I never saw in my life such attentive audiences as Mr. Whitfield's in New York. All he said was, demonstration, life, and power of the Spirit. The people's eyes and ears hung upon his lips. They greedily devoured every word. He preached during four days, twice each day. He is a man of middle stature, of a slender body, of a fair complexion, and of a comely appearance. He is of a sprightly, cheerful temper and acts and moves with great agility. The endowments of his mind are, are uncommon. His wit is quick and piercing. His imagination lively. And as far as I can discern, both are under the direction of a, of a sound judgment. He has a most ready memory, and I think speaks entirely without notes, and has a most ready memory, and I think Speaks in, oh, it speaks entirely without notes. He has a clear and musical voice and a wonderful command of it. He uses much gestures, but with great propriety. Every accent of his voice, every motion of his body speaks, and both are natural and unaffected. If his delivery be the product of art, it is certainly the perfection of it, for it is entirely concealed meaning it just looks so natural for him to speak. He has a great mastery of words, but studies plainness of speech. He speaks not his own zeal. He breathes a most Catholic spirit, and by Catholic, he means small c, a universal spirit, meaning you can be Baptist, you can be Presbyterian, you can be Congregational, you can be Church of England. No matter what your religious background he has a Catholic sense in that there is a universal appeal no matter where you come from and what your background is because he speaks of the Lord. He, he speaks of the way of salvation. He, he professes that his whole design is to bring men to Christ. 
and that if he can obtain this end, his converts may go to whatever church and worship God in whatever form is best, close quote. In other words, he understood he was a harvester of souls, and he put his arms around the body of Christ, and he had a very uh, uh, peacemaking tone with other brothers and other sisters in the body of Christ. Well, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin saw in Whitfield really a gold mine, and Benjamin Franklin became his publisher, and Benjamin Franklin printed 10 editions of Whitfield's journals. You ought to read his journals sometimes. It's a big, thick book like this, and Whitfield wrote daily journals, and the beauty with which he can write. If he can speak like he can write, and I'm sure his speaking is better than his writing, how, 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 how moving must his speech have been with the command of his words. From 1739 to 1741, more than half of the books that Benjamin Franklin published and sold were either by Whitfield or were about Whitfield, such that Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin really were, were, had a strong partnership together. Well, he leaves Philadelphia at the height of this popularity. His last sermon is to 30,000 people. And he travels south to Savannah to winter there for, the, uh, for January and February, and there he tends to the orphanage, and wherever he preaches, he is collecting funds that go entirely to his orphanage. And for 20 years, this orphanage will be, in essence, the personal financial responsibility of George Whitfield. And he will take up a collection in places. It will all go to the orphanage. And for 20 years, this financial responsibility was a millstone around his neck. It almost drove him to bankruptcy. And there would be a titled woman in England, Lady Huntington, who uh, circled with the aristocrats, finally helped him pay off this debt of the orphanage after 20 years. And again, it's another example of the, the, the humiliation of Whitfield that all of the resources that are coming in are for this, this orphanage that he only every once in a while is able to see. Well, after being in Savannah, Georgia, he boards a ship. He sails up the Atlantic coast to Delaware. He then travels again to Philadelphia and into the surrounding area. He preaches in Philadelphia, and when he leaves Philadelphia, a thousand men get on a thousand horses and follow Whitfield to follow him wherever it is he's preaching the next time. And they travel to New Jersey, and as he preaches there, they just want to hear Whitfield preach one more time. From New Jersey, he goes back to New York City, and then he comes back to Philadelphia, where he is met with even growing success. He is energized along the way as he's traveling. He is meeting other preachers who are, who are strong-hearted. He is forming a bond and a partnership in spirit with these other preachers. He is fueling their passion. He is working in partnership with them. He then sails north to, to Newport, Rhode Island, uh, where he is met with great gospel success. He pushes north to Boston and, and preaches over a week there. He then goes up the coastline as far as Maine. He then goes down the coastline, preaching Christ in every place. He stops back at, at Boston, and the very uh, Dr. Thomas Pence uh, Prince writes, the very face of the town seems to be altered. It is a dramatic effect as, as they come to hear him. It is during this time that Whitfield then rides by horse to where Jonathan Edwards has invited him to Northampton, and there he preaches the four times. Listen to what, to what Whitfield records in his diary of his experience of preaching, uh, for Edwards in his pulpit, quote, 
October 19, 1740, preached this morning, and good Mr. Edwards wept during the whole time of exercise. The people were equally affected, close quote. And Edwards himself will go on to write that the entire town was affected by the preaching of Whitfield. Whitfield, then from Northampton, he comes to preach in a town called Middleton, Connecticut, and he preaches there with extraordinary power. And I want to read you this account of a farmer who heard Whitfield preach. I remember 40 years ago when I was in seminary, my professor of church history reading this account And my heart was moved as I heard this. And I thought, oh God, someday as a preacher of the Word of God, would you use me like you used Whitfield? I want you to listen to this. It's dated October 23rd, 1740. So it's during this year-long preaching tour. This farmer writes, I was in my field at work. When I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home and through my house and told my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach in Middletown. So it would just travel word of mouth from field to field and from farmer to farmer that, that, that Whitfield is coming. So he receives the word that Whitfield is coming to Middletown. And so he just drops his plow. He runs to the house. He tells his wife to get ready. We have just enough time to make it to Middletown. I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I would be too late to hear him. I took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought my horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on on my saddle. So apparently he started out, he was riding, he was making her... And so the horse got tired, not his wife got tired, but the horse got tired. So he hops down and puts the lighter load up on the horse and he starts jogging. He really needs to be saved. And I bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me, except I tell her. So I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again, putting her back on the ground, (laughs) fearing we would be too late to hear the sermon, for we had 12 miles to ride double. I saw before me a cloud of fog. Off in the distance, he sees this fog. I first thought it was from the great river, but as I came near the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder. I presently found out it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. It's a stampede galloping to Middleton to hear Whitfield preach. And the dust is so high in the air, the farmer thought it was fog rising from the river. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of the horses' feet. It rose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along. It was like a steady stream of horses and their riders scarcely more than than his length between another. I found a vacancy between two horses. Sounds like he's trying to get on the 405. (laughs) He he sees one horse's length that he can just slip his horse in. That's how you drive out here, right? There is no opening. You just make an opening. And so this man pushes his horse out in the middle of the stampede with his wife up on the horse. I found a vacancy between two horses to slip in my horse. And my wife said, Lord, our clothes will all be spoiled with all of this dust. And when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000 people. I'm in Middletown. This is out in the middle of nowhere. 
When I looked toward the great river, I saw the ferry boats running swiftly back and forth, carrying people from the other side of the river to come here Whitfield. And when I saw Mr. Whitfield come up upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelic. A young, slim, slender youth before thousands of people and with a bold, undaunted countenance. My hearing had heard how God was with him everywhere. And as he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me in a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God. A sweet solemnity sat upon his brow, and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. I've researched this. This man was unconverted and would not be regenerated for an entire year. This is a lost man galloping to Middletown to hear the evangelist preach. And in researching this, this man was of deep Arminian persuasion, believing that salvation was in some large measure dependent upon him. And in researching this, this day, Whitfield preached on the doctrine of sovereign election. George Whitfield believed in the sovereignty of God with all of his heart. He believed in the great doctrines of the Reformation. He believed in the great doctrines of the Bible. And he would say, I ha- at one point, I have never read anything that John Calvin has ever written, but I agree with him in every word. That day he preached on the doctrine of election with evangelistic fire. And it so gave this man a heart wound that for the next year of his life, he staggered under the blow, the heavy weight of this sermon on the doctrine of predestination and sovereign election, and it shook him to the very core of his being that salvation is of the Lord. He finalizes this, by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and only such a heavy hammer as the doctrine of the sovereign election of God could come crushing down upon his proud, arrogant, self-righteous heart, and it shattered him into a thousand pieces. And it took a year for those broken pieces to be pieced back together and to come in humility before the Lord. Whitfield knew all about that because that was Whitfield at Oxford. That was Whitfield for five years, struggling to know the Lord. And so as he preached, he preached great doctrines. He was a doctrinal preacher. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Close quote. This is just the effect of just one man who reported what it was like to hear Whitfield preach. It was arresting. It was riveting. It was captivating. It was compelling. It it was heart-searching. It was soul-searching. It was life-challenging. It was holding up Christ. It was calling sinners to faith. It was summoning. It was inviting. It was pleading. It was urging. It was exhorting. It was said that Whitfield could hardly preach without, without weeping at some point in the sermon. And, and one man came to him and said, I don't like your weeping in the pulpit. And Whitfield said, you won't even weep for your own soul. I must weep for your soul. 
And he, he was so full of life and energy as he preached. Well, that's just one example and one testimony. And he preached throughout the rest of the year and at the beginning of 1741. Now, remember, he's still in his 20s. He's only like 26 years old at the time. He was born in 1714. Um, He now sails back to England. And as he goes back to England, and and if, if that had been me, I would have said, this must be God's will for me to stay here. Look how people are being saved. Look how God is using me. Look at the response. Whitfield saw it totally different. Whitfield saw it as, now that they're awakened here, let me go to where there are others who are asleep and who are slumbering and who are, who are lethargic in their worldliness, and let me blow the trumpet there and let me awaken them. So Whitfield gets on a ship. He sails back to England. When he had left England, he had left at the height of his, his visibility. He had, when he left in the summer of 1739, he had preached face to face to a million people. It was said at Hyde Park, at the height of that, he preached to 80,000 people. As he comes back, not only are church doors still closed to him, but he returns to an unexpected controversy that all but undermines his ministry. John Wesley, while he has been gone, has written a track, a little small booklet called Free Grace that is a frontal assault on Whitfield's doctrine of predestination and has distributed this far and wide. And it has undermined Whitfield in front of the the eyes of the people. And as Whitfield has been gone, Wesley now has assumed a place of, of, of influence with the people because he's there present. And he is telling the people that Whitfield is preaching the devil's doctrine. And this gives Whitfield a heart wound that his old friend would attack him like this. The very one that when he received the letter to come to Georgia, that that he immediately responded to come help Wesley. And so he was put in the very awkward position, almost like Paul when he was attacked by the church at Corinth, of having to defend himself. And it created a painful separation between Whitfield and Wesley that therefore further divided thousands of Christians depending upon where you would line up behind either Whitfield or behind Wesley. It was Whitfield who would continually be trying to offer the olive branch to Wesley and to try to build bridges back to him. Whitfield was once asked, Do you think you will see John Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said, no. I will not see Wesley in heaven. Because he will be so close to the throne of grace. And I will be so far away in the back corner of heaven that I will not even be able to see Wesley. Whitfield spoke in such endearing terms of Wesley, and Whitfield would eventually turn the Methodist movement over to Wesley to remove any sense of competition that would exist between them, and it was Whitfield who requested that at his memorial service in London that it would be Wesley who would preach his memorial service. So this became a very uh, contentious division between these two men that had an effect, uh, some effect 
of dousing some of the flames of, of the Great Awakening. And if Wesley would have only chosen to have been conciliatory towards Whitfield, it would have greatly helped the movement. Because of this, Whitfield fell out of some favor with many people, with the press as well, which only further spread uh, this division. And as Whitfield would now go to these large fields to preach, there would be people who would hire hecklers to go to the meetings and be disruptive and go to the meetings and try to create chaos. They would hire trumpet players to climb up into trees and to blow their trumpets while Whitfield is, is preaching in the fields. Um, they, when Whitfield would go into a field, sometimes there would be, like I said, the commons would be going on and people would leave the common, would leave the, the, the carnival atmosphere and come listen to Whitfield and it was taking business away from the hucksters. And so they would begin to throw stones and dirt at Whitfield. They would throw rotten eggs at him. They would throw pieces of dead cats at him. They would kill an animal and drain the blood and hurl blood and at times hurl feces at Whitfield while he would stand and preach. Uh, there were multiple attempts to take his life. Uh, there was once an attempt where a man tried to stab him to death and Whitfield, because of his agility, was able to escape. Uh, there were other times where there would be ambushes set up because he's out traveling on a horse or in a coach and simply have one or two men with him to help him as he would travel. But by the providence of God, he would be kept alive and he would escape their attempts. He wrote, and you, you, you ought to read his diaries. I mean, it, it's just fascinating reading. He writes, I received many blows and wounds. One was, one was particularly large and near my temples. I thought of Stephen. I was in great hopes that like him, I should be dispatched and, and go off and hit this bloody triumph to the immediate presence of my master. So he is being beaten and, and his life is being all but taken. And he just thinks of Stephen and goes, oh, perhaps I'll see the Lord standing in heaven and I will be caught up to, to be with the Lord as a result of this. Arnold Dalimore, as he writes that two-volume biography, it's the, only, it's the only books I've ever read three times in my life. It, it is thrilling. It is exciting to read those two volumes by Arnold Dalimore in the life of Whitfield. As he comes to these years of Whitfield, Dalimore, the biographer, simply says this, every year is the same. Wherever he goes, he is attended with blessing. Wherever he goes, large numbers come to hear him. He preaches the word of God. People are brought under conviction of their sin. People are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. New churches are, are, are spring up with the new converts in them. And so Arnold Dalimore has to fast forward through some of the years, he said, because it would just be too repetitious. It would it would be too hard for people to hold their interest in reading this because year after year after year, it's just more of the same. Whenever Whitfield was in London, there were businessmen who pooled their resources together and built not one, but two churches in Whitfield that were known as Whitfield's Tabernacle. Just so that whenever he is in town, he has two buildings at his disposal in which he could preach. And whenever ships would pull up the Thames River and they would dock in London, the first question when they would step off the boat would be, is Mr. Whitfield in town? Is Mr. Whitfield preaching today? It was said by John Newton that the streets of London at six in the morning with torches being held in hand were as thick with traffic 
at 6 in the morning as at 7 o'clock at night in the theater districts with people going in the early hours to hear Whitfield preach whenever he was in London. Someone asked me during the break about, did Whitfield ever marry? And Whitfield, after he had been in Northampton, and he saw Edwards, but he saw Sarah. He saw her, not just her beauty, but the beauty of her person. He saw her social graces, and it made him long for a wife. And Whitfield hastily married a widow named Elizabeth James, who was older than him. She had never traveled anywhere. And Whitfield was Rand McNally. I mean, Whitfield was just traveling everywhere. And it really proved to be a great difficulty to her as she would try to travel with him, but she was never a woman who had ever traveled anywhere. And she would eventually die. Whitfield loved her, and she would bear him a son, and that son would die, and it would be a very tragic thing. Just to give you a footnote on this, Whitfield suffered great financial stress because he had the burden of the orphanage, and he was continually having to send money to Georgia to pay for the orphanage. It left him personally bankrupt. His wife and new son that she had born for him, his name was John, um, they could no longer afford to live in London. Now think about this. They have built two churches for him whenever he's in town to preach in, but he just can't afford to live in London. So he puts her in a coach, a horse-drawn coach with the son, his son in the dead of winter, and has them go back to Gloucester. And they are traveling through the nights in the winter, and their four-month-old son, John, is overtaken by cold. And when they arrive at the Bell Inn where he was born, the son dies. And the irony is that in the very house where Whitfield was born, his son dies. And the funeral service is held in the very church where Whitfield preached his first sermon when he was ordained as a deacon and where he himself had been baptized as a child. The funeral service was held there. It was a part of God crushing Whitfield and breaking Whitfield. And it's been well said, whenever God chooses to use someone greatly, He must first break him greatly. And it is those who are crushed in spirit that God molds and shapes their character into what they need to be to be used. Whitfield will make a third trip, a fourth trip, a fifth trip, a sixth trip, a seventh trip to the colonies. He would sail to Bermuda uh, to recuperate. He would travel around throughout England. Uh, on one occasion, it had to be longer because of the French-English War or the English-French War, and ships on the open sea were subject to being uh, either pirated or, um, or, or, or shot at. Um, Whitfield is introduced during this time to Lady Huntington, as I said, uh, Salina Hastings, and she would help with financial support in a way that, that he greatly needs. Um, his ministry will continue to expand. He will give control, as I said, to Wesley. And during these preaching trips, the hand of God continues to rest heavily upon Whitfield. I'm trying to find my notes for one particular. I, I have an excerpt from one of his sermons. I want you to hear what it's like to hear Whitfield preach. It was even greater than this because these would be his preaching notes. 
as he would sit down and as he would write how he would hear himself preach, in reality, the passion would far exceed and the word choices would far go beyond what is even recorded in his notes. But here is Whitfield preaching, and this is in his own handwriting and in his own words. I offer you salvation this day. The door of mercy is not yet shut. There does now remain a sacrifice for sin for all who will accept the Lord Jesus Christ. He will embrace you in His arms of love. Oh, turn to Him. Turn in a sense of your own unworthiness. Tell Him how polluted you are. Tell Him how vile you are. And do not be faithless, but believing. What? You fear that the Lord Jesus will not accept you? Your sins will be no hindrance. Your unworthiness is no hindrance to Him. If your own corrupt hearts do not keep you back, nothing will hinder Jesus from receiving you. He loves to see poor sinners coming to Him. He is pleased to see them lie at His feet and pleading His promises. And if you thus come to Christ, He will not send you away without His Spirit. No, He will receive you and He will bless you. Oh, do not put a slight on His infinite love. He wants you to believe in Him that you might be saved. This, this is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy and to make you leave your sins and to sit down eternally with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me beseech you to come to Jesus Christ. I invite you all to come to Christ and to come to Him now and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. He is ready to receive you. I invite you now to come to Him that you might find rest for your souls. He will rejoice over you if you will come. He will be glad at your coming. He calls you by His ministers. Oh, come unto Him. He is laboring to bring you back from your sin and to bring you back from Satan unto Himself. Open the door of your heart and receive the Lord Jesus, and the King of glory shall enter into your soul. My heart is full. It is quite full. I, I must speak, or I shall burst before you. What? Do you think your souls are of no value? Do you esteem them not worth saving? Are your pleasures worth more than your souls? Had you rather regard the diversions of this life than have the salvation of your souls? If so, you'll never be partakers with Him in glory. But if you come unto Him, if you come to Christ, He will supply you with His grace and bring you home to glory. And there you shall sing praises and you shall sing hallelujahs to the Lamb forever. May this be the happy end for all who hear me here today. That is but just one paragraph out of a large sermon of Whitfield pleading, begging, inviting, calling, persuading, summoning lost sinners to be awakened from their slumber and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I love his sermon, The Conversion of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus up in that sycamore tree, and the Lord Jesus comes walking by, and he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, and Whitfield said, of course he saw him in the tree. He saw him from all eternity past. How could he miss him within time? Today I must dine with you. Come down swiftly and salvation will come to your house. Reading the conversion of Zacchaeus just makes your heart happy. It lifts your spirit. To, to feel the, the, the powerful pull of the 
preaching of, of, of Whitfield. And so Whitfield, this tireless evangelist who will make so many trips that as I'm looking at my notes here, I don't even know where to step in because there's so much going on. The fullness of his life, 30,000 sermons, almost 1,000 sermons a year, 365 days a year. You can do the math on this, how much the man is preaching. His wife dies in 1768, in September of 1769, unknown to Whitfield. He prepares to step onto a ship and to sail back to the colonies. It will be his last sermon to give on British soil. He chooses for his text, John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no man shall pluck them from his hand. It's simply called his farewell sermon. Unknown to him, it would be his last time to preach in London and on British soil, and how appropriate his last sermon to be a message of salvation and a message of sovereign grace in salvation. He sails to the States. He arrives in Charleston, South Carolina. He preaches for 10 consecutive days in Charleston. When Charleston was perhaps the major city of the, of the colonies, of all of the colonies. And he preaches to increasing crowds. He travels it's south into Georgia. In late spring, he takes a ship. He travels north. He preaches in Philadelphia. He preaches in New York. He goes up the New England coastline. He goes all the way up to Maine. He comes back down, and he comes to Exeter, New Hampshire. He is weary. He is tired. John Wesley, when he saw him in England before he left, said that Whitfield looked to be far beyond his age. As he prepares to preach in an open field on September the 29th, 1770, Whitfield prayed, Lord, I am weary in the work, but I am not weary of the work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and preach for you one more time in the fields and seal your truth, and I would be ready to come home to you. It proved to be almost prophetic. After he preached, he then took horse ride down to Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is north of Boston. He has preached in Newburyport before. There were so many converts in Newburyport that they could no longer remain in the dead Orthodox church there, and a brand new church was spontaneously birthed, like there were 300 of these churches that were birthed in the colonies. This one was Old South Presbyterian Church. Whitfield was coming back to Newburyport, like Paul on his missionary journeys, to come back to the churches that he had founded. He comes back to to see how the church is doing. The news is out that Whitfield will preach the next day and that as he is at the pastor's house, and I've been at this very house, it's two doors down from the church. He goes up to the second floor and he preaches what will be his last sermon as there are a couple of thousand people who are gathered there and knowing that Whitfield will preach the next day. In the middle of the night, Whitfield had battled with asthma his life. And the stress and what he called a gospel sweat from his preaching 
as he retired to the second floor to his bedroom, and there was a secretary, a man who traveled with him, who was an eye observer of of everything that took place. Whitfield began to gasp for air. His throat began to to close down. And at six o'clock in the morning, as Whitfield was to preach that very morning to the people of this church, Whitfield expires. Whitfield so loved preaching that he had said, when I die, I hope to die preaching in the pulpit. But if I am not, if I do not die in the pulpit, bury me either under the last pulpit that I preached in or bury me in the next pulpit in which I am to preach. Two doors down. To this day, I just was in there with R.C. Sproul two years ago. Is the church where Whitfield is buried. He is buried under the pulpit, such that when you stand in the pulpit to preach, and I've had the privilege of standing there and preaching, Whitfield is literally under the pulpit. You can go down into the basement of the church, and there in this basement is the tomb of Whitfield. They had to seal it shut in cement because there were so many people who came to this tomb and wanted to open it up. It is a fact of history that Benedict Arnold, when he led the American troops north up into Canada, into battle against the British, purposely went to Newburyport that he could go down into that basement and cut off a little piece of Whitfield's clothing and carry it into battle as if it were the Ark of the Covenant. There were parts of Whitfield's body that were detached and would end up in London and would finally be returned until they fi- there were so many well-wishers, they just finally had to seal it shut. For the funeral service, there were so many ships that came into the harbor that the harbor could not contain any more ships. And they were backed up down the coastline. And then in England, there was a memorial service. And John Wesley preached that service. Wesley said, have we read or heard of any person since the apostles who testified the gospel of the grace of God so widely and so extensively through so large a part of the inhabited earth. Footnote, Whitfield would actually say in the middle of his ministry, the world is now my parish. Wesley went on to say, have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads, that means tens of thousands, of sinners to repentance. Above all, have we read or heard of any who has been a blessed instrument in His hand of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God? Those are rhetorical questions, the answers of which are so obvious they do not need to be answered. The answer is no, we have not read of any preacher since the apostles who has been so widely received. So Whitfield, not quite 56 years of age, 55 years of age, after 34 years of hard preaching, 
left to be with the Lord. J.C. Ryle, the great English preacher, remarked, No preacher in England has ever succeeded in arresting the attention of such crowds as Whitfield, as he, that he constantly addressed around London. No preacher has even been so universally popular in every country that he visited, in England, Scotland, and America. No preacher has ever retained his hold on his hearers so entirely as he did for 34 years. His popularity never waned. Other men merely existed, Lloyd-Jones said. Whitfield lived. How do we apply this? What, what do we do with this? Well, there is one sense in which the best of us are intimidated by this. For who can run with Whitfield? Who can stride with Whitfield? None of us can. But there is also the positive application that no matter who you are or where you are, there is a work for you to do, and that we must expend ourselves in that work, and we must sacrificially give of ourself in the service of the Lord, that we must say with our Master, we have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give our life a ransom for many. So, in what way do you need to pick up the pace? In what way do you need to widen your stride? In what way does the example of Whitfield call upon all of us to do yet more by the grace of God in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? And as we see him die at age 55, a, a relatively young life, we realize we really have such little time here upon the earth. The hourglass has been turned upside down and the grains of sand are passing through so quickly. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Ephesians 5 says that we must redeem the time to buy up the opportunities for the days are evil. And Jesus said in John 9 in verse 4 that we must be about our Father's business for night is coming when no man can work. My night is coming. Your night is coming. The sun is setting upon our own lives. And while it is day, we must do the work of Him who has sent us. So may the example of Whitfield be, be a motivation and an encouragement to extend yourself yet more fully, to spread the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that when Christ returns and we hear that trumpet blast, that our shoulder will be to the plow and we will be busy doing our Father's work and serving Him wherever it is that God has placed you. Oh, may the Lord use the examples of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield to light a fire and rekindle a flame within you to be mightily used by the Lord. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the examples of these two lives, how these two men we're instruments in your hand, and the greatness belongs not to the tool, but for you, with you who pick up the instrument and use the tool. Father, we thank you that you use these men so, so effectively. And Lord, we long to not waste our life. We long for our life to count for eternity. And only as you would pick, it, pick us up and employ us in your service 
may our lives be well invested as well. Father, would you give direction to my brothers and sisters here today regarding where they should plug in in their service? And so many here today are already serving you with all of their heart. And the mere fact that they're here today is an expression of their love for the things of your kingdom. They would not be here on a Saturday if they, if they did not love the things of your kingdom. So give them further direction so that they can make the most wise investment of what you have entrusted to them. May you bless them. May you cause your face to shine upon them. And may you pour out the fullness of your grace upon these precious friends. For the sake of Christ, amen. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.